Senior executives know that to stay on top of your game, you need to constantly challenge and develop yourself. IMI's new senior executive experience delivers future-focused learning. Gain invaluable tools and insights in areas like organisation resilience and digital transformation to shape the future of your organisation. Visit imi.ie for details. Welcome everyone to another edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Today I'm joined by James Hewitt, whose areas of interest include equipping leaders to perform sustainably at their best and approaching knowledge work as an endurance activity. James, please could you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a quick overview of what knowledge work is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, so as you mentioned, my name is James Hewitt. I describe myself as a human performance scientist. Uh, but this journey into human performance scientist uh, science actually began for me more than 20 years ago. I used to be a full-time racing cyclist. Um, but during that time, I realized quite quickly I wasn't going to be fantastic. So uh, I raced full-time for several years, but ended up going back to university, studied sports science, ended up setting my own, co uh, my own coaching business. But the majority of the people that I worked with were knowledge workers. Uh, so these were people who think for a living. I had some clients who were professional athletes, they were professional cyclists, but most of the people that I worked with um, worked with information for a living. So the definition of knowledge work um, is that economic value is generated by completing cognitively demanding as opposed to physically demanding tasks. And also the work often primarily involves handling and producing information. So these were management consultants, finance professionals, uh, software developers, for example. But what I found during this time was that if I didn't account for the load and the stress that was associated with their working life, I couldn't plan their physical training effectively. So I started to apply tools and frameworks from sports science to try and quantify the load associated with their knowledge work. So thinking about the psychological factors, the impact of the length of their working day, started to look at things like sleep duration, for example. And in the end, I became equally and in the end more fascinated with trying to quantify knowledge work uh, and understand the effects of this load and how that influenced performance than I was in their sporting side of what they did. And actually, since then, I've dedicated my work and research to exploring knowledge work, in particular, the association between well-being and performance. And I conceptualize knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity in a similar way that you might think about cycling as a physical endurance activity, for example. So that's led me to do that today and, uh, uh, and then led me to be on this podcast and to speak with your members uh, a few days ago. Thanks very much, James. It's a fascinating approach to performance that you're taking. And you, as you mentioned, recently joined us for a webinar for IMI members, and you spoke a bit about these kinds of high performance capabilities. So things like concentration, creativity, decision making, and how these can be impacted by factors like stress and lack of sleep. So we're going to delve a little bit more into that now. So 70% or 71% of professionals say that they struggle to relax. It seems like high performers have no problem switching on, but they do have problems switching off, which can lead to a degradation in their performance. And previously, the whole work-life balance or switching off piece was largely seen as an individual responsibility. But nowadays, it's more evident that leaders play a greater role in that. So if I'm a leader within my organization, what can I do to make sure that my team members are switching off? That's a great question, Farron. 
I think one of the challenges that many of us have um, is that as knowledge workers, we can do a lot of our work using what I call ICT, so information communication technology, which is just a fancy way of saying we use smartphones and laptops a lot to do our work. And so the challenge with those technologies is that they can really support business performance and collaboration, but it also means that we can work almost anywhere at any time. And so one of the things that some people have been doing, some governments actually have been doing, is to introduce this idea of a right to disconnect. Because I think the challenge is that there aren't any boundary, clear boundaries anymore. And you know, this is a notion that's sometimes described as boundaryless work. And so there's actually legislation emerging to actually codify and actually create frameworks to give people legal the legal right to stop working outside of normal hours, whatever that is. So that is the kind of the blunt instrument. That's the, um, a, the a, a really strict way that um, you know, leaders could could follow those laws in the relevant countries uh, and make sure that people can switch off. And you know, in some places, that's even gone to the extremes of turning off email servers and things like that. But I think that there's maybe a kind of more relational way that leaders can approach this, but adopting a similar principle, which is to actually give people permission, be very, very clear about what expectations are in terms of when teams and employees are going to be available. Because sometimes I think there's quite a big difference between what a leader expects and what the employee thinks is expected. So for example, a leader might think, you know, I don't expect people to be set replying to emails late into the evening. Um, but there's an implicit assumption that they do or that there'll be benefits associated with that type of uh, that type of connectivity. And one of the most powerful ways that a leader can send that signal is by modeling the behavior that they want to see. You know, there's this uh, uh, idea that leaders reproduce who they are. And I can guarantee that if as a leader, you are sending emails at all hours, you'll be setting an expectation that your team will respond to those emails. So what I'd often encourage leaders to do is to model that. And I accept that there's different working patterns. So I myself, I know several leaders who um, sometimes quite enjoy that quiet time in an evening when, you know, the kids have gone to bed or, you know, uh, whatever kind of uh, home situation you're in. And um, you've got a bit of time to be able to catch up on a few things. Maybe you've had some ideas, um, some some novel solutions have come to mind, and you want to just send a few emails because maybe you're excited about it or you just want to capture that thought. What I encourage people to do is either write that email and save it or delay the sending of it. So schedule it for sending the next day. Because I understand that you might want to capture it and you do want to get it off your plate. But that simple act of delaying its sending to whatever kind of more conventional working hours are in your work culture, make sure that as a leader, you're not falling into that trap of sending an implicit message that you expect everyone else to be online at all hours. So that's just one practical idea. Uh, But essentially what I'm talking about is rather than having boundaryless work, actually starting to create uh, cultures within our organizations where there is some sense of demarcation uh, between work and home life. And also we set very clear expectations to give people permission to switch off, even if it's not enshrined in law in the country where we're in at the moment. Thanks very much, James. I think that scheduling of emails is a really handy tool, definitely something that I've used before myself. And you mentioned this already, remote work, you know, kind of the the notion now that your work laptop is in the same room in the evening that you're using to relax in. Have there been any studies about how remote work has impacted on stress? Does it make it more difficult to actually switch off and have those downtime periods when there's no real demarcation between work and home? Yeah, that's another really good question. It's interesting, isn't it? Because 
remote work at one point was touted as the solution to the problems of our fast-paced kind of pre-pandemic lifestyles because suddenly you know rather than having to rush to the office and have the commute to deal with we'd be able to all work at our own pace at home and it would all be fine uh, but the reality is that there is some research and it shows some mixed results so Microsoft have done some really interesting research in this area because they obviously have access to huge amounts of anonymized data from how people interact with their devices through Microsoft software. And obviously it's ubiquitous. Millions of people around the world use Microsoft's Office 365 software. And, uh, and obviously knowledge workers, as I mentioned earlier, use a lot of this software, this technology in their work. So they published a report called the New Future of Work Report, and the data indicate that remote work can actually have some really positive benefits, like improving job satisfaction. But it can also lead some employees to feel socially isolated, guilty, and also sometimes trying to overcompensate. So there's this phenomenon that seems to emerge where uh, because we're not present, because people don't see us in the office, we feel like we need to work extra hard to really show our engagement through our electronic communication. So the data from Microsoft do indicate that remote workers are putting in longer hours at their desks. There's also some other indications that work is getting more intense. So the number of meetings per week has increased by 153%. Overlapping meetings, that means being double booked, has increased by 46% per person. And in terms of the impact on mental health, well, 80% of UK workers feel that working from home negatively impacts their mental health. And 81% of employees who are under the age of 35 say that they feared loneliness associated with long-term home working. So now some employees are actually choosing to switch back to roles with an in-office component. But it's not clear cut because for people who've battled with office based working life before the pandemic, you know, people who maybe had difficulties uh, with different responsibilities, whether that was caregiving or otherwise, uh, might, a lot of those people have seemed to have decided that even though there are some downsides associated with remote working um, for their mental health, it's worth the cost. So I think that many companies, many leaders are grappling with the problem of how to design a model for work that works for everyone. And so my reading of the evidence is that there are some real positives associated with remote work. And there are also some potentially significant downsides, but the distribution of those effects, positive and negative, is not even. And I think that as leaders, one of the things that we can do um, in particular is to take a more, a more structured approach, a more intentional approach to trying to measure what's going on so that we can figure out which of these working patterns is working best for who and also in what context, because we know that different types of work are better suited to remote versus in-person versus hybrid, for example. So there's some signal in the research, but I think there's still a lot more left to be learned so we can figure out how to make working life more sustainable for as many people as possible. That's really interesting, James, especially the role of the leader in finding that balance between working from home and office-based working. And now following on from that, I want to talk a bit about instant messaging tools like Teams and Slack. And obviously these have a huge role to play in modern work, especially when people are based in different localities and you know enabling work to be done at that faster pace rather than things like emails or face-to-face -face meetings. But do you think that these kinds of tools have made it even harder for people to disconnect when you think about all the notifications that we get on our smartphones and on our laptops? And, you know, you look away from your phone for an hour and you've got emails, you've got Teams, you've got WhatsApp messages, you've got LinkedIn messages. How can we mitigate that feeling of 
overwhelm that we might get from so many different notifications and kind of requiring an instant response on things like Teams or on Slack. Mm, that's a great point. I mean, there's there's lots of data about this and some of it's more robust than others, but you know, there's some uh, reports that indicate that we check in on our smartphones 150 times a day. There's others that suggest that on average, we check in on some kind of communication tool, whether that's email or some type of instant messaging once every six minutes during the working day. And I don't know about you, but if I'm not careful, I can certainly relate to that and fall into that trap. And I think one of the challenges with these instant messaging systems like Teams or Slack, for example, is again, they can promote collaboration and particularly in um, a remote work setting, it can promote uh, fast exchanges of information, idea sharing, that mimics maybe what would happen if you're in an in-person environment. So there are some good things, but the challenges are that it does create this super strong urge to respond to work-related messages very quickly. And this almost this preoccupation with quick response times. And the actual the, the user experience is, is designed to promote that. Obviously, commercially, what they want is people using these communication tools as much as possible to justify the subscriptions. And so you'll see that in terms of the, the, the user experience, it's engineered to capture your attention. And there's no, it's no surprise that the icons that pop up uh, indicating that there's an instant message waiting for you to read and respond to are usually red and circular. And because we know that uh, our brain exhibits a unique pattern of activity when we see objects which are red and round, uh, our attention is preferentially drawn towards it. And we also know that work-related smartphone use in particular seems to be negatively associated with something called psychological detachment. So that's just an academic way of describing this experience of switching off. Um, so I describe psychological detachment as the experience of having a sense of mental distance from your work. And we know that psychological detachment, this experience of a mental distance from your work is critical. Some people would actually say that it's a prerequisite for recovery to take place. And it does seem that work-related smartphone use is negatively associated with this experience of detachment. Interestingly, it's um, it's associated with a with less detachment, irrespective of people's experience of what you call telepressure, which is that um, urge or that preoccupation with feeling like you need to respond really quickly. And so you might not feel a lot of that pressure, but even the uh, um, if you're having to use your phone a lot, it's likely to be stopping you from psychologically detaching so well, and then potentially impairing other aspects of your recovery. So one of the things that I sometimes encourage people to think about doing, and again, this might not work in all contexts, but would it be possible for you to delete those instant messaging applications, Teams and Slack from your smartphone and just use your desktop computer or laptop for them? Now, again, it's not necessarily going to be possible in all circumstances, in all workplaces, but it might be something that's worth talking about and thinking about as a team, you know, for you as a leader and um, is it, would it be acceptable? Do you think the team could operate just as well if people didn't have these applications on their phone? Because that that reduced smartphone use could significantly improve your team's psychological detachment, that sense of mental distance, and probably help them to recharge more effectively and be more engaged and perhaps perform better the following day. And so if you're if you're interested in that, I often encourage leaders to do an experiment. So you don't if you change the way of working and introduce something new, you don't necessarily need to do it forever. And be your own scientist. Maybe do an experiment and say to your team, we're going to do an experiment. We're going to delete anyone who wants to participate in this. You've got permission. Uh, I'd encourage you to delete Teams or Slack 
uh, applications from your smartphone. And then we're just going to interact with it through our laptop uh, or our desktop computers. And then we're going to check in again in, say, two weeks' time and uh, maybe even deploy some kind of survey measure to see how stressed people feel. You, know, you can deploy these surveys very quickly and easily and 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 maybe include a measure of psychological detachment as well. And you know, the, there's very simple surveys that you can use to measure those that kind of experience and then put some numbers to it. Uh, has that worked for you? So, um, so yeah, so in answer to your question, a very long answer to a very clear question, um, do instant messaging tools like Team and Slack impact the ability to switch off? They do seem to. And uh, to address that, I'd really encourage people to do an experiment, maybe remove the apps from your phone and see if it has a positive effect for you and your team. That's great, James. A really practical takeaway that leaders can implement to try to get a better sense of the impact of those tools on their team members. So now that we've covered switching off, I want to talk a bit about sleep. So sleep is a major factor in achieving peak performance. And a study showed that if people sleep for six hours per night for two weeks, that's essentially the equivalent of not sleeping at all for one night. So that really speaks to the importance of sleep in performance. And for optimum sleep, we should avoid too much bright light in the evenings and try to get our bright natural light in the mornings instead. So my question to you is, what is your recommendation for people who live in places like Ireland and the UK that have such dark winters? And, you know, sometimes it's not possible to get natural light early in the morning because it's dark until 9am or so. What do you think about synthetic solutions like sunrise lamps or some other kind of solution to getting that bright light? Mm, I think that's a really important point. Farah, and uh, you, know, you mentioned Ireland and, and the UK. And I've also done quite a lot of work with Finnish companies and in Finland. And obviously, they've got an extreme situation in terms of uh, the lack of bright natural light during uh, significant parts of the year um, uh, in terms of their location on the planet. And these artificial lights, um, these kind of natural light mimicking lamps, for example, as you mentioned, sunlight lamps uh, can be really effective. You know, there's actually these uh, kind of blue light or light therapies or therapeutic lamps. The key is that those lamps need to mimic bright light, bright natural light, which um, really refers to the type of wavelength of light that they emit. And so it needs to be blue enriched. And there's various different products available uh, that uh, that do facilitate that and provide that kind of light. Um, but I would strongly recommend it. And the positioning of the light, as well as the timing of the light matter matters, because essentially what we're trying to do is simulate the experience of um, uh, the sun being uh, in the sky um, uh, uh, earlier than it actually is in, in our location on the planet. And so, you know, a perfect solution would be to have one of these blue light mimicking lamps uh, or these natural light mimicking lamps uh, in your office, for example. So when you're working in the morning, instead of it being dull still, you actually had it positioned kind of above eye level. Uh, so uh, it kind of gave you that impression of almost working outside. Um, but it is worth noting that even on a cloudy day, there's still a lot more bright natural light than inside, generally speaking. And so uh, this is something that if you're, people are interested, you can test out. And I encourage people to do this. Um, you can do a little experiment. You can get these light meters um, uh, which aren't 100% accurate, but they give you a sense of uh, how bright uh, an area is. And they're actually available as apps for most smartphones. And it uses the phone's camera um, to, to measure light intensity using a measure called Lux. And so I encourage you to just do a little experiment. So measure the light with the app inside in your office where you typically work. 
um, measure outside on a cloudy day, on a sunny day, by a window, in your bedroom, for example. And you'll be amazed at how dull the environments are that we often spend a lot of time working in. And it's interesting because obviously bright light helps sleep uh, when it's timed appropriately. So as you mentioned, you summarise really helpfully, Farah, bright light in the morning, then avoiding that light in the hours before bed. But also there's a, a dose response relationship between the brightness of the light and alertness, how awake we feel. And so if, for example, you're um, just not feeling as sharp and alert as you'd like to, it might be worth thinking about uh, addressing the lighting in your office space um, so that it was that natural light mimicking wavelength and, and brighter in terms of its intensity, um, as well as obviously thinking about that contrast effect, the bright light in the morning, and then uh, the dimmer, more orangey red colored light later in the day. Thanks very much, James. Again, really interesting and a really fascinating topic to talk about. So I want to stay on sleep for my next question. When we talk about getting optimum sleep, we often talk about things like keeping a certain routine of when you go to bed and when you wake up. We talk about the exposure to light like we've spoken about and keeping your caffeine intake down before you go to bed, that sort of thing. But I think a lot of that applies to people who work a nine to five. What about people who work shifts? So for example, they work 12 hours in the day, or next week they switch to a pattern where they work 12 hours in the night and they have four days off. How do those people maintain good sleep hygiene for peak performance? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a such an important topic. And it's a real challenge as well, because you know, we are starting to realize uh, increasingly how harmful um, uh, regularly messing up or regularly having very irregular sleep and wake times is. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to kind of freak people out who are shift workers, but um, there, you know, there, there's some indications even that there can be small increases in, in a risk, in risk for, for several different chronic diseases, um, uh, some quite serious ones associated with shift work. And it's likely that continual disruption that is that is um uh, that is, that is, is at the root of it it's, it's probably causal i mean obviously that the perfect scenario would be that you did shift work and the shifts were regular regardless if they were day or night shifts because as you alluded to establishing a consistent sleep schedule is really key um so trying to go to bed and wake up at the same time each day even on days off um, and actually trying to um, create artificial light environments that mimic uh, what would be happening um, at, uh, at with natural with natural cycles of light and dark, even if that is out of sync with what's going on with where you are on the planet at that point. So, for example, making sure that you're really getting enough bright light during a night shift. That's a big challenge for a lot of shift workers because, again, they might be working at night in an office or or some kind of indoor environment. So that light contrast is going to be really key. Um, and so uh, there's actually a, a colleague that I've worked with who's a professor of sleep science and circadian rhythm at, at Harvard. And he's worked with um, several um, uh, top sports teams with NASA, um, uh, actually looking at the lighting on the space station and you know some crazy uh, environments. And one of the things that he's done is to recommend the, uh, um, the lighting systems to make sure that regardless of what's going on outside, that uh, the light inside is the appropriate intensity. And so, you know, for Formula One teams working through the night uh, on uh, creating new parts for the cars, for example, or astronauts flying around the earth, uh, you know, several times uh, um, each day. So consistent sleep schedule, if you can think about lighting, uh, the sleep conducive environment is the second one. So when you do get to sleep, try and maximize the quality of that sleep as a shift worker, which means making sure your bedroom is dark, quiet and cool, 
and using blackout curtains and a sleep mask if you're having to sleep while it's daylight outside, for example. Obviously, caffeine and alcohol is key. Um, so you might be using caffeine during a night shift, for example, but make sure you avoid it for as long as possible in the hours leading up to bedtime. And winding down before bed, paying even more attention to um, actually uh, uh, enabling your body to start to slow down as well as your brain to start to relax before you sleep. Um, and then again, exposure to bright light uh, when you do get up. Naps is another possibility. So uh, for shift workers, if you've not had chance to sleep adequately, um, then uh, thinking about taking a nap. Uh, the duration of that nap is going to vary depending on how much or little you've slept previously. But um, there are, for example, if, assuming that you've slept enough, but you do need to just top up your sleep, even a 10 minute nap can result in significant boost in alertness if you're a shift worker who finds that they're, um, they're starting to feel a little bit sleepy. If you do nap for a bit longer, um, just be aware of the fact that if you if you nap for longer than 10 minutes or if you're quite sleep deprived going into a nap, you start to enter deeper, deeper sleep cycles during that nap, which will increase what's called sleep inertia when you wake up. So when you wake up from the nap, you're going to feel more groggy, a little bit more tired. Um, so even though subsequently you will boost alertness, you'll reduce some of what's called sleep pressure that accumulates. You need to make sure that you leave at least half an hour after the nap before you do anything that's safety critical. So driving or using a machine, for example. Now, you know, I'm not giving specific advice here. If you're in a safety critical environment, you need to speak to the relevant people on your team, obviously, about what's going to be appropriate for you. Um, but um, but yeah, they're probably some of my, my kind of mitigation strategies, really, because I think that's if someone's shift working, that's that's the main thing that you can do. You can't avoid all of the downsides, but you can mitigate and Consistent sleep schedule, sleep conducive environment, avoiding caffeine and alcohol, wind down before bed, use light to your advantage, nap wisely um, would be my, my top six tips for shift workers and their sleep. Thanks very much, James. Some great insights there. And finally, to end off, I want to talk a bit about neurodiversity. And I want to find out from you if you think that the results of some of the studies that we've spoken about, like needing certain amounts of sleep and 10 minute breaks and that sort of thing, if you think those apply equally to both neurotypical and neurodiverse people. And the reason I ask, and this is totally anecdotal, but I came across a thread on Twitter recently where someone said, caffeine makes me sleepy. And a lot of people replied and said, I have ADHD and caffeine makes me sleepy as well. So do you think that there are certain things that are not exactly the same when you're talking about neurotypical people and neurodiverse people when it comes to peak performance? Yeah, I think that's another really important point. And I think the challenge that we've got is um, with uh, when we're talking about these type effects and how they generalize or don't generalize to um, a population who was neurodiverse in, in some way, is that there's often just not enough research. And so it's, you know, and we see these type of challenges in all kinds of scientific research that you're always limited by the population that's been studied. And, and my view is in terms of uh, uh, thinking about how these effects generalize to a neurodiverse population, um, I'm not aware of sufficient research to be able to say, yeah, um, you know, this, uh, uh, th this effect definitely translates or it doesn't translate. And this is specifically what you think about, uh, you need to think about. I mean, in terms of the effect of caffeine on ADHD, um, there is some interesting evidence to indicate that there might be some difference. It's largely anecdotal, but um, it's anecdotal evidence. But there's 
there's there's something there and it could be associated with the fact that you know people who've got adhd um you know their um uh, their, their patterns of alertness and concentration are going to be different in some ways to someone who is neurotypical and we know that caffeine has quite a profound effect on those mechanisms of alertness for example so we've got to we've got to wait and see more research needs to be done but i do have some thoughts about maybe what leaders should consider if they're thinking about some of these interventions some of these practices um, for um, neurodiverse people who might be part of their team and and i think that the key is going to be to consider unique needs and experiences of neurodiverse individuals you know whether that was autism adhd dyslexia uh, to create an environment that's inclusive that's supportive i mean one of the things that i'd consider uh, encourage people to think about is flexibility because uh, neurodiverse individuals may have different work styles, communication preferences, sensory sensitivities, for example. And so this is an example where I think that flexible work and uh, the shift towards uh, accommodating remote working, for example, hybrid working can be really helpful for some neurodiverse individuals um, where they might really um, benefit from and appreciate flexibility in working hours and schedules to accommodate uh, their differences uh, and enable them to perform at their best. So flexibility is one. The second thing I'd be thinking about is the sensory environment. So I talk, I've spoken quite a lot um, uh, in the webinar, but also in other work I've done about the importance of engineering an environment for focus for everyone. So some evidence indicates that knowledge workers interrupted once every 11 minutes. And then in general, it takes people 23 minutes to get back up to speed on their original task. So we're all vulnerable to distractions and interruptions, and we'd benefit from creating an environment that was more conducive to focus. But for someone uh, with ADHD, for example, that's going to be even more important um, because certain sensory stimuli like bright lights, loud sounds, even strong smells can be really overwhelming or distracting. So um, I think that uh, if we created spaces either in people's homes or, or in our working environments where it was quiet, where people could use noise cancelling headphones, maybe even uh, adjustable lighting again, is going to benefit everybody but um, it could have a particular benefit for some neurodiverse people. Um, communication is another thing, obviously. We want communication to be clear, to be concise, to be indirect. Uh, uh, that's going to help everyone, but particularly for maybe people with dyslexia, for example, um, uh, providing uh, different types of instruction, uh, maybe considering whether it needs to be an instant message or whether something else might help uh, or might be better is worth considering. And obviously training and support. Um, but the final thing I'd probably say is uh, in terms of thinking about applying these different principles is about um, recognizing uh, strengths and the neurodiverse individuals may have unique strengths. You know, maybe it's attention to detail, pattern recognition, creativity, and it's going to be critical when we're thinking about applying these well-being principles, whether it's encouraging people to sleep adequately, thinking about caffeine, creating an environment. We want to make sure that we're creating environments where everybody can thrive. Um, where everyone can achieve sustainable high performance. Um, and uh, some of those changes and interventions are going to benefit everyone. But I think there's some accommodations, some changes, which really could benefit neurodiverse people, perhaps more than, than anyone in the workforce. So, yeah, that would be they'd be my, uh, my, my, my reflections and thoughts on how we can uh, support people with different abilities uh, in a workplace context as leaders. Thanks very much, James. Really interesting conversation. And I think we've just scratched the surface of peak performance. So thank you so much for joining us on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast today. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can follow us on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time. <laughs>